Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. I am Stephen Azera, the teaching pastor and one of the elders here at Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, We are grateful that you have decided to join us and participate in our preaching and teaching ministry. We pray and hope that our ministry is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, We are going to begin this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to read and then examine verses 3 through 17. And the scripture says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Astaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Then Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gigal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Now that the Philistine and the Ark of God storyline has come to an end, the author returns to Samuel and his leadership of Israel. The last time that we saw Samuel, it was at the end of chapter 3. And in verses 19 through 21, The scripture says that Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to reveal himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
According to scripture, as Samuel matured into manhood, the Lord made this publicly known. How did the people of Israel know that Samuel was God's choice as their prophet? Because none of the words that Samuel said fell to the ground. Samuel's wisdom, his counsel, his prophecies, all of those things came true and the people knew that God selected him for them. And that means the Israelites are now responsible for obeying Samuel. They're responsible for submitting to his leadership. And we see that obedience in our text this morning. Our text begins with Samuel rebuking the people of Israel for their idolatry. Back in the book of Judges, uh, the Lord warned the people of God concerning idol worship. He says to them in Judges chapter 2, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And then in Judges chapter 3, the scripture says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served idols. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Judges, but the theme of that book is a cycle. And what I mean by that is Israel falls into idolatry. God brings an enemy against them. Right before they're about to lose, they cry out to God. God hears their cries. He sends them a judge. The judge saves them. The people are relieved, but they again fall back into idolatry. It's rinse and repeat. It was a continuous cycle throughout the era of the judges. But it wasn't a cycle that had to be. When the Lord brought the Israelites to the doorsteps of the promised land back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he warned them. God said to them, you shall not go after other gods. You shall not worship the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst and he is a jealous God. And if you do, the anger of the Lord will be against you and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. Of all the Old Testament gods, Baal is probably the most popular. Uh, the Canaanites and the Phoenicians worshipped the statue. The name Baal means Lord, and in pagan mythology, he was the god of fertility. He was able to control the production of crops and also pregnancies with women. According to the Canaanite mythology, Baal had two sisters. Uh, the first sister was Anath. She was not as popular as the second sister, who was called Ashtoreth. She was also a goddess of fertility, like her brother, Baal. Now, I shouldn't have to say this, uh, but pagan mythology and the stories associated with mythology are obviously not real. They're, they're made up. Each of these gods and goddesses have a different story attached to them depending on the pagan worshipers. For instance, the Philistines, they called Ashtoreth 
Asherah. The Assyrians called her Ishtar. The Phoenicians called her Astarte. And although they were the same goddess, each pagan nation had their own separate background story for her. They're legends. They're pagan mythology. It isn't real. And their stories surrounding them are completely absurd. Completely absurd. Although the Lord warned the Israelites of idolatry, it was a perennial problem for the people of God. And it even spills over into the Gospels. Several times in Matthew and Mark, the Pharisees and the other enemies of Christ call the Lord Beelzebub, which is Greek for Baal-zebub, the god of Philistine mythology. Uh, they essentially call Jesus a false god. The Jews knew what they were doing. When the Jews called Jesus Belzebub or Belzebul, they were essentially calling him a false god. That the claims that he made about himself, they're saying that you are the same as Baal. A false god. A god that was made up by the invention of men. Jesus accused the Pharisees, and the Jews of idolatry. He says to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Even in the New Testament letters, the apostles warn the church of idolatry. Paul says to the Corinthians to not be idolaters. He says to flee from idolatry. The apostle John says to the church to keep yourselves from idols. Obviously, the warnings assume that the threat of idolatry is finding its way inside the church, or else why would the apostles warn the church of idolatry if there wasn't a threat of it? Samuel instructs the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 7 to put away their idols. If they are indeed returning to the Lord, uh, the people are called to repentance. Uh, God's people must serve him exclusively and the people respond by putting away their idols and committing themselves to only serve the Lord. I, I, I enjoy that the people that I minister to love my preaching. I, I hear that a lot. Um, the people that are in my church, they, they, tell me a lot that they enjoy my preaching. Uh, they, they think I'm, 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 I got gifts and talents. They obviously acknowledge the Lord working in my life. Uh, I, I enjoy that they enjoy my preaching. But, but without committing yourself to the preaching, your professed love to what is being preached means nothing. It means nothing. And the same applies to the Israelites. If they claim to love the Lord, then they need to commit themselves to him exclusively. If they claim to love Samuel, then they need to commit themselves to what he's preaching. And since Samuel is preaching repentance and serving the Lord exclusively, the people are responsible to honor that. 
They are responsible to commit their ways, to demonstrate their devotion to the Lord by submitting to Samuel's preaching, committing themselves to serve the Lord exclusively, and by putting away their idols. What did the people do at Mitzpah? Well, according to scripture, they repented of their sins, they fasted, and they poured out water to the Lord as an obvious symbol of spiritual cleansing. Samuel, because he is God's prophet on behalf of Israel, he also prays for them. But this is important. This rally that's happening at Mizpah, this gathering, this assembly of the people is a test. The Lord's using this as a test for them. The name Mitzpah in Hebrew means watchtower. And it was a vantage point for military purposes. And the location was also seen from a distance. It was visible. The Philistines, they notice that the Israelites are gathered together. And they think that this great gathering of the Israelites is an imminent attack. So they decide to take the initiative in the battle and attack first. Back in chapter 4, uh, there were two battles that Israel suffered decisive defeats to the Philistines. Now they just recommitted themselves to the Lord. They put away their idols. They, they, they publicly proclaim that God is their Lord. They're going to serve him exclusively. And here's the enemy on their doorstep. The enemy that just defeated them two separate times in battle, they lost 30,000 men to the Philistines. What were they going to do? Were they going to trust in the Lord or were they going to turn back to their idols? And the scripture says they turned to the Lord. In fact, they begged Samuel to pray for them. They beg God for his help. Samuel's impressed by their reformation. Uh, he sacrifices a lamb as a burnt offering, and the Lord does respond. And as the Philistines get closer, the Lord confuses them with a sound of thunder, and the Israelites defeat them that day in battle. After the victory, Samuel sets up a large stone, and he calls the name of that stone Ebenezer which is translated a stone of help. In 1787, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the original version written by Robert Robertson, the second verse begins with, Here I raise my Ebenezer. The more modern versions of the hymn do not have that line for whatever reason. Anyway, Ebenezer was a monumental stone, and it was set up to signify that God gave great help to the one who actually raised that stone. That the one who raised the stone, the Israelites, they received God's great help. And it was a memorial stone set up for the Israelites to remember God's faithfulness to him. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, in Judges chapter 13, verse 1, the scripture says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines have been bullying the Israelites for the past 40 years. From the time of Samuel, or Samson to Samuel. For 40 years, the Philistines have been a great thorn in the side of the Israelites for 40 years. And finally, finally, the Israelites repent of their sins. They offer up a sacrifice to God. They put away their idols. They commit their ways to God. And finally, God gives them that great relief. Forty years being bullied over. Finished. The Lord restores the territory that Israel lost during those 40 years. The Lord caused peace to come between Israel and the Amorites, another people that used to harass Israel for several years. Over, it's finished. The chapter ends with the Lord blessing Samuel's ministry. This is now the third time in 1 Samuel that it is mentioned Samuel serving the Lord and judging Israel his entire life. This is the third time now. In seven chapters, the author, 1 Samuel, emphasizes Samuel's leadership over the people. I mean, he was essentially like Moses. He was the Lord's prophet. He acted like a governor. He over he practiced he practiced oversight of all Israel's spiritual life. He made sure that Israel was in a right relationship with the Lord. He he functioned like a Moses for them. And the author of 1 Samuel wants you to understand that. That these people had great help. And that's the Lord caring for them. All because they committed their ways to the Lord. Those who make the Lord their God, their God, right? Those who make the Lord their God and serve him never have God against them. A very popular Bible verse is Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where Paul says, since God is for us, who can be against us? No matter how much adversity, no matter how much suffering, God is never against those who commit their ways to the Lord. You're never let down. You're never disappointed. God is never against those who love and serve him exclusively. Those who make the Lord their God, he will always be for you. He is always at work for you in your life. And before we get all prosperity gospel, the only reason that God is for you is because his hand was against Jesus. That's it. Jesus is the assurance that God's hand will never be against you. 
Why? Because Jesus took God's judgment for us. It was on the cross. God was against Jesus so that he could be for all those who embraced Jesus by faith. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Go back and look at it. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? The reason why God's hand is not against you is not because of you, because you're special or worthy. It's because of Christ. It's because God did not spare his own son is why he's now for you. Notice that in our text this morning, the Lord inclined himself to Israel after they sacrificed the lamb. Up to that point, the Lord's hand was against them for 40 years. The Lord consistently raised up the Philistines against them as a judgment for their sins. 40 years. This was Israel's life. Always looking over their shoulder for the Philistines. Philistines bullying them, taking territory from them, taking their women from them. Slaughtering 30,000 men in battle at a time. For 40 years. But when they sacrifice that lamb and the people repent, God was for them. The only way God can be for you and not be against you is because of Christ. That's it. So do you embrace Christ and what he did for you on the cross as a payment for your sin? Do you sincerely trust in Christ alone for salvation? Well, yeah, I do. Then great, God is for you. Christ is your Ebenezer. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Sometimes that, yeah, I don't, again, I don't want to get too prosperity gospel here. I, I don't like the prosperity gospel. But sometimes we have to qualify statements because when you say God is for us, that's, that's a, a phrase that's often used by prosperity gospel ministers. But it is true though, God is for you, but he is for you because his hand was against his son. That's it. That, that opened the door for God to receive you as a child. Because his son took your punishment. God's wrath, his hand, his judgment, his anger, whatever you want to be, was against his son when he put him on the cross. That's it. I want to go back to idolatry for a few minutes. Even a, a cursory reading through the Old Testament you would find idolatry as one of the main themes of Israel's life, right? You go back and you, you read the prophets, you go read the book of Deuteronomy, idolatry is a major theme in their life. And we're often amazed that how the Israelites could 
fall into idolatry. I mean, didn't they experience God's wrath against the Egyptians? Didn't the Lord save them by his strong right hand? Didn't they see the, the waters of the Red Sea create a wall so they can you know, move on dry ground? Didn't they see the Egyptians who chased them drown in the Red Sea? Didn't God give them uh, bread from heaven, manna in the wilderness? Didn't they strike the rock? Didn't, didn't they see water come in? Didn't they see all the miracles, the tabernacle, the glory of God by cloud, the glory of God by fire? How could these people fall into idolatry? We're often amazed by them. But we shouldn't be. Because idolatry is present even among the saints in the New Testament and even among the saints today. Idolatry has followed the people of God everywhere we have gone. But why? Why, why do the people of God fall into idolatry? In order to answer that question, we have to define first what an idol is and what is idolatry. First, I, I don't think an idol can be something like a television or like watching sports. I, I, know, I know people say that all the time, like, you know, people, oh, you make sport an idol or you make television uh, an idol. I, I don't think that's the essence of what an idol is or idolatry, especially if we use the terms that scripture uses. I don't, I don't see how watching TV can be an idol. I don't, I don't see how, you know, enjoying a recreation can be an idol if we use scripture's terms. Because according to scripture, an idol is something that occupies the place in our desires, it, it occupies our thoughts. It, it occupies our words. Uh, it, it occupies the way that we worship. There's a, a heavy degree of reliance and dependence upon idols. I, and I don't see how, you know, things like television or sport can, can be an idol if we use Scripture's terms. God is our creator. All, all humans are bound to worship God alone. And for an idol to occupy the place in our inner members and to receive our worship and for us to rely upon them instead of God, that is idolatry. And again, that's why I think it's difficult to say television or football can be an idol because I've never met a man to truly worship television. Well, well, I have. If you use scripture's definition of idolatry and idols, you haven't. You haven't. Do, do people watch TV a lot? Yeah. Do we watch, do we look at our phones a lot? Do we? Yes, we do. But they're not idols. We don't, we don't worship them. We don't offer sacrifices. We don't commit our ways to them. That's what an idol is. It, it occupies the place of our worship. 
And the reason why it's idolatry, because God should occupy our worship. And the Lord hates idolatry, and it's a sin. And the reason why is because God is unique and unrepresentable. There isn't anything that is further than the divine nature of God as an idol. You know what I'm saying? Like, there, is, there isn't anything that is completely on the other end of the spectrum from God's divine nature as an idol is. And scripture talks about this. Scripture says idols are powerless to save. Isaiah 45, 20. They have no knowledge who can carry about their wooden idols and they keep on praying to gods that cannot save them. Idols are powerless to save their own people. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? Scripture says idols are lifeless. Psalm 106 says, Then they yoked themselves to Baal and ate sacrifices offered to the dead idol. Idols are nothing. Jeremiah 51, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. Idols were treated as saviors. They were treated as omnipotent and sustainers of life. No one treats a TV that way. You know what I'm saying? No one treats baseball as if they are the savior or omnipotent or the sustainer of life. Those people are like in, they're crazy. We don't, that just doesn't exist. We have to use scripture's terms. And the reason why idols are the further, the furthest thing away from God's divine nature, because God is powerful to save, although the idols are not. God does save and love his own people, although the idols did not. God is not lifeless, although the idols were. God is not made by human hands. He is not made by the invention of human mind. God is self-existent. He cannot be made with hands. But the people, like the Canaanites and the Philistines and even, and even the Israelites, they treated these idols as if they were saviors, as if they were omnipotent, as if they were sustainer of life. The Lord hates idols. He hates idolatry because idols and idolatry belittle him. They belittle his divine nature, and that's being generous. But Pastor Stephen, no one, no one really today worships an idol. If that's the definition of an idol, no one really today worships an idol then. Yeah, they do. All religions, except for the Christian faith, which is the true faith, worship idols. The Muslims worship an idol. 
the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Roman Catholic Church, Episcopalians, the ECLA Lutheran denomination, the PCUSA Presbyterian denomination, they all worship a false god. It's a god that they have invented in their minds. Even some churches that we would consider a part of the Christian faith. The Methodist church is heading that way. There are some Pentecostal churches. There, there are some Baptist churches that are heading that way. Every single faith other than the true Christian faith worships idols. Every single church except for the true church of God worships idols. As long as sinners are in the world, idolatry will follow. Guaranteed. So how do we, how do we keep ourselves from idols? First uh, John chapter 5 tells us to keep ourselves from idols. How do we do that? I know this answer sounds so cliche, but this one is true. Jesus is our cure for idolatry. And this is how we practically keep us, keep ourselves from idolatry, by striving after him, by praying to him, by doing our work like we are serving him, by listening to him, meaning sitting under the teaching of his word. We, we keep ourselves from idols by constantly bearing witness to him day and night. And what I mean by that is doing everything for his glory and not for the glory of another. That's how you keep yourselves from idols, striving after Jesus, praying to him, doing all things for his glory, not even doing anything for your own glory, but everything for him. And by reading and submitting to his word. That's how you keep yourselves from idols, striving after the Lord, committing yourself to him, committing yourself to his ways, submitting to those that he has placed over your authority. He has placed above you as spiritual leaders. Listening to the word that's preached, doing everything to the glory of Christ. That's how you keep yourself from idols. And that's how Christ will be your Ebenezer. He will be your time of help in this world and he will be your help with the entrance into eternal life. You keep yourselves from idols by committing your ways to the Lord.